We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Doug shares his message from Around the Corner, What If You Had Time? All right, let's do this thing. And here's the thing. I, I know that Jesus Christ is the most significant human being who's ever lived. Uh, it's no surprise to me personally, because I happen to believe that Jesus Christ is God in human form. So of course, if God comes down and walks among us, he's going to make a difference. But even if, if you're someone who doesn't believe, or you're not sure that, that Jesus was really God, you still have to contend with this truth that no single human being has changed the course of history like this one man. Jesus was a story maker and a storyteller. See, as a story maker, everywhere he went, people couldn't stop talking about him. They were telling stories about the latest thing uh, he did. He was doing crazy miracles on the regular. Crowds would follow him around just to see what stunt he would do next. He single-handedly disrupted the most powerful human empire of all time. He overturned the religious establishment. And then, after all that, he let himself be tortured to death on a cross And then three days later, he rose again from the dead. And then after he rose again, he said, and now because of of his accomplishment, you and I get to rise from the dead too. We get to have eternity, eternal life. It's amazing things. But, but, But here's what's just as crazy to me, that if Jesus had done none of those things, we would still be talking about him because he was also the greatest storyteller whoever existed. Even if he hadn't done miracles, hadn't, hadn't turned the world upside down, his stories were so powerful, so profound, that we would still be telling those stories today. Jesus had this power where he could tell a story in as few as, as three sentences. It'd be so simple and yet so profound and wise. Uh, and, and a story that Jesus took three sentences to tell, human beings have spent the last 2,000 years writing millions of pages trying to understand them because there's so much depth and power to these stories. Uh, I've found that myself, that there are these parables that Jesus tells, and, and maybe some of them are even only one line, one sentence, and yet I find myself finding new and deeper truths every time I circle back around and I read that story, that there, there's a, a new truth that I had completely missed the first time around. That's what a great storyteller Jesus was. And our scripture passage for today, Luke 10, uh, is, is a really great passage because it shows both sides of Jesus, the story maker and the story teller. You see, Luke 10 tells us that as Jesus and his disciples were going on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, uh, and she sat at Jesus's, at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Mary was, uh, but Martha was distracted by all the urgent preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or maybe even just one thing. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is Luke chapter 10. 
And before we get into this moment of, of Jesus' interaction, I, I wanna just pause and say, it is crazy that this story is in the Bible. This is just, why would this be a thing that gets written down? This is a, a random domestic family squabble, uh, and, and yet here it is. This isn't, uh, this isn't Jesus uh, you know, turning water into wine or overturning tables in the temple or bringing people back from the dead. This is just a dinner party that had, had a weird thing go wrong in it, and yet they included it in Scripture. And you just even notice that and and say, why? Why would that be in here? It would be like if decades from now, someone wrote a history book and they said, I want to tell you about how the 2020s were just a really turbulent time. I mean, in the 2020s, you had a global pandemic. uh, You had capital riots in the USA. You had Russia invaded Ukraine. And then that summer, the Pitney family, they hosted a barbecue and Paul and Christy got a little frosty with each other during the barbecue. You'd be like, what, how, how did that, how did that elevate to all these other things that are going on on a global stage? And yet that's exactly what's going on in Luke 10. And what I believe is it's because while, while the other big things, they're, they're clearly important, they change the course of human history, this little domestic moment is actually extremely powerful for each and every one of our lives. It matters to our life today just as much as all of the other amazing things that Jesus did. Because here's the thing, this is still the same Jesus. This is Jesus, the disruptor of empires. This is Jesus, the disruptor of religious establishments. This is Jesus, the disruptor of family dinner, I guess. See, because notice what's going on in the story. Like, as, as we look at it, there's, there's some things that we might miss the first time around, that, that Jesus is disrupting a lot of things in this very simple little moment of just a few sentences. Uh, first is that he's disrupting the culture in a big way. There, there, there's a really interesting thing that you might not notice uh, if, if you don't know the, the values of the culture 2,000 years ago, but, but women legally could not hold property at the time that Jesus was on the earth. That was, that was part of the, the Roman legal system, part of the Jewish legal system. Women could not own a house. And yet, look at how Luke, one of Jesus's followers who came along after, look at how Luke describes this moment. He doesn't say uh, that this house belonged to Lazarus, who was Mar- Martha and Mary's brother, uh, and he was presumably there and with them, but, and he it wasn't his house, it was Martha who opened her house, or, or maybe it was Simon the leper that owned the house, or like, we're not sure, there's another story that says Martha and Mary were hanging out at Simon the leper's house, maybe it was Simon's house that they were at. But the fact that Luke and Jesus frame the story as Martha is the one who opened her home to Jesus is already a very culturally disruptive thing to say, because she certainly didn't own the house, and yet they give her the credit as being the one who made the choice to invite Jesus into her home. And before we get much farther into this, I want to just say Martha gets a lot uh, of crap from people when they read this story. Like, oh, Martha, she gets it all wrong. She's the one that opened her house to Jesus. She's the one that made this really wonderful choice that kicked off these events in the first place. But then, maybe Martha wasn't expecting this, they disrupted the religious practices as well. You see, there was, it was a very common thing in Jewish time and in, and in religion that, that you would have a rabbi like Jesus, a wise spiritual leader and teacher, and he would have disciples. And one of the ways you knew someone was a disciple was they would sit at the feet of the rabbi. And there was a group of people who were allowed to sit at the feet of the rabbi. And you can probably guess who they were. That group was men. Women didn't sit at the feet of rabbis. That's just not a thing that was, was, uh, was normal, was tolerated there. And so the fact that, that the very first part of the story that's told is that Mary, Martha's sister, was sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking up everything he had to say to her, 
that was a religiously awkward thing. And it was the kind of thing that would have been scandalizing even for the good, faithful, you know, religious folks of the time. The people that loved Jesus, loved his teaching. It would have been weird. It would have been bothersome, scandalizing that Mary is treating herself like she's a disciple of Jesus with the same privileges and functions of a disciple sitting at his feet. Which then leads to the fact that that Jesus doesn't just disrupt on a grand scale. It's not just empires and and religious establishments. He disrupts on the the local scale. That This family dynamic, whatever's going on in the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, Jesus just dives right on in and blows all their structures up as well. You see, you can just picture how Martha is just getting more and more fed up by the moment. That as she's watching Mary not just not help with the preparations, but also do this thing that's a little inappropriate and, and no one else seems to notice or care. And you can just see how Martha's blood just starts boiling, boiling, and finally it just bursts out. And you know it bursts out because Martha was a good hostess. You know that when you're having a squabble, you keep it from the guests, right? You kind of something or you hiss at them or you pinch them under the table when no one's looking, right? You don't, you don't let the group know that there's fracture uh, and the people throwing the party. So the fact that she got so upset, so mad that, that she brought uh, the guest of honor into the squabble, that, that's how you know this is, this is a big deal. This is something that, uh, that, that really matters. The family is disrupted. And the other thing that sticks out to me by its absence, uh, again, is that they have a brother and his name is Lazarus. And we know that Lazarus was really good friends with Jesus, really close with him. And so the fact that Jesus is at this home, you know Lazarus was there. He just would have been. It's where it would have been. He was close to Jesus anyway. Which means that Lazarus was watching his sisters get more and more frustrated with each other. And he was just decided, not going to engage with this one. Mm Mm-mm. Nope, I'm not going to let them handle it, which is how we know that Lazarus was a wise man. (laughs) Because I have learned the hard way that when two women in my family are upset with each other, the last thing I should do is get involved. Because I will solve it. I totally will solve it. I will solve it because they will gang up and get mad at me. And and then they're unified. (laughs) And then Jesus dives in where Lazarus feared to tread. Where these two sisters are having this family spat and it, it's, it's gone public. And Jesus doesn't bow out, doesn't do what, what I think is the wise thing and just let them hash it out between themselves. Jesus gets involved. And he's Jesus, he's allowed to do that. He's a disruptor of, of all the things. But what, what blows my mind is that when Jesus got involved, you notice he got involved and he picked the wrong side. There's this family disagreement and Jesus landed and sided with the wrong person in this story. Right? I want you to pretend that this is not a Bible story. This is not a thing where you've read and heard how Jesus lands on this. But if this was just a normal thing that didn't have Jesus involved at all. I mean, look again at this. If someone's hosting a party, if you're hosting a party, and one of you is, is doing all the things that had to be done, and then the other person, you know, sister, spouse, uh, is leaving all the work to be done and is ignoring it, you think Mary is the one in the right here? Or how many of you think Martha is the one that's right here? And if, if you don't think Martha is the one that's right, you have clearly never hosted a party with my wife. 
she would never tolerate this. And, and you wouldn't either, right? If, if I was oblivious and not noticing that our guests needed something, uh, if there was uh, you know, a setting that wasn't right or the, the temperature was too cold or someone's wine needed to be refilled, if I was oblivious and ignoring all those things, my wife would be frustrated with me, and rightly so. And I think you know that too. And I don't want to be the only one up here uh, saying that I think Jesus is wrong. Uh, so I'm going to try and bring you along for the ride and, and, and show that I think you think Jesus is wrong too, if we're being really honest. So here's what I want you to do. You hopefully got a card on your way in because uh, we're going to do some meditating, reflective moments. And so if you got that card, pull it out, grab a pen. There's pens in the pew. If you don't have a card, get your phone out. Your phone has a notes app, I promise you. Maybe you've never used it, but it does. Get out that card, get out your phone, turn on your notes app. And I want you to really take this moment seriously. You're not going to have to share this with anybody else. I'm not going to ask you about it. But I want you to do an internal audit. And I want you to really reflect. And so on your card or on your notes app, I want you to write two words. Mary and Martha. And next to Mary, we're going to divide out the tasks of your day, the ways that you spend your life. So if Mary is the one who is sitting and just receiving the, the goodness of Jesus, she's not doing anything, she's not doing any tasks, I want you to think about those tasks in your life, those moments where you're not doing anything necessary for life, you're not preparing anything, you're not accomplishing anything, you're just receiving in stillness what Jesus has for you. So those would be moments like if you do a Bible study and you just sit and you read God's word and you just see what it has to say to you or, or maybe you, um, you sit uh, quietly and, and, and turn on Joy FM or, or turn on a favorite praise song and you just sing that song and you just connect with God that way or, or maybe a moment where you just carve out all distractions and you just pray to God and you just connect and reflect with him. And I want you to just think about those moments, those moments where you are not doing anything, you are just receiving what God would have for you. And I want you to think about the minutes. I want you to tally the number of minutes in a week that you just do nothing and receive what God might have for you. For example, we do a growing deeper here, uh, which means that you know, five days a week, we invite people to, to spend 15 minutes uh, in Bible study. Uh, so that, what that means is if you did that, if you faithfully did our growing deeper, you would do 75 minutes a week of just receiving, doing merry tasks. So write down those minutes. Whatever they might be. Estimates, fine. All right, now I also had to write down Martha. Martha is contrasted. She's the doer of the necessary things. She's the one making life work. And so I want you to think about all of your Martha tasks in a week. But I don't want you to count minutes. I want you to count the hours. Count the hours that you spend making sure the house is clean, making sure that the kids get where they need to go, making sure that lunches are packed, that the grocery shopping is done, that the bills are paid. If you work, I want you to count the hours that you work so that you have a paycheck and an income so that you can afford the house that you're in and the food that you need uh, to, to buy and all of the tasks of life. I want you to count all of those hours. Now, you don't need to get too far. You can finish this on your own, but I think you can already see every one of us spends a higher number of hours doing the necessary tasks of life than we even spend a number of minutes receiving from God. And if that's not how your tally wakes out, then it works out, come up to me after the service and I will bow at your feet because you are the holiest Mary I have ever met in my life. Right? None of us do this. None of us look at this and say, oh yeah, Mary's got it right, Martha's got it wrong. And, and we can see it in the very prioritization of our tasks because actions speak louder than words. You can, you can with your head think, oh yeah, you know, Mary chose the better thing. But in, our, in the life choices we make, every one of us spends far more time, far more energy, overwhelmingly more time, more energy on the Martha tasks. Because if you didn't, 
life would collapse. You have to, right? And so there's already a disconnect for us in this story that if we're really being honest, if we're forgetting that this is a Bible story and Jesus gives us the right answer, that we know there's something wrong here because Martha is doing the right things and Mary isn't. And so what are we supposed to do with that? When our own choices match Martha's, and then when Jesus says this thing, so here he is. So Jesus weighs in on this and he says, you know, Martha, you're doing it wrong. Mary has chosen what is better. And I think most of the time we read this and we think, yep, Jesus, yeah, Jesus is right. He's right. Mary's chosen what is better. I should do that. I, we should choose what, what is better. And, and yet I think when we do that, we, uh, we, we fall into a trap that, that actually keeps us from engaging with scripture the way we should be. Because when we do that, here, here's what I see myself doing. We are treating Jesus like the dentist. And here's what I mean. Uh, I mean that twice a year, I engage in a song and dance with my dentist every six months. And here's how it goes. I go in, I get my cleaning, they do my checkup. Yep, I don't have any cavities. And then the dentist says to me, are you flossing? And I say to him, you know, not as much as I should be, which is code for no. Of course I'm not flossing. I don't want to admit it. So I say, no, no, not, not as much as you. He says, you know, you really need to be flossing more. I'm like, you're right. You're so right. Yeah. He's like, they have these things called water picks now. You should maybe invest in a water pick. And uh, I was like, oh, how expensive are those? Oh, they're like $200. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll invest in a water pick. Totally. Yep, I'll floss. I'll get a water pick. Totally going to do that. And he's like, all right, great. Pats me on the shoulder. And then I, I get out my phone and I make an appointment for six months later to lie to my dentist again. <laughs> it's what I do. I think it's what a lot of us do. And, and here's the thing. He's right. He's so right. But I'm not actually going to change a single thing in my life. I'm, I'm not uh, going to do any of these things. Uh, and, and yet I think this is what goes on in this moment. They, All right, Jesus. Oh, yeah, you're so right. You're right. And you marry shows and the better thing. You're right. And none of us are going to actually change a thing. Because here's actually the dirty secret. If I'm being really honest with myself, and I invite you to be honest with yourself too. If I'm being really honest with myself, I do not think my dentist is right. I think my dentist is a little too obsessed with teeth, <laughs> frankly. And I get it. He spent all these years, he went to dentist school. Uh, he spends his days, you know, hour in and hour out looking at people's teeth. I totally get why he thinks I should be flossing more. But if I'm being really honest, he is wrong. Because my life is just fine without any flossing. I don't, I don't have cavities. There's not a reason why my life is any better. And yet he wants me to voluntarily prioritize this task that has no impact on my life. And he can say all he wants, that this is right, this is better. No, it really isn't. And so it's not even that Jesus is right, we're just not gonna do it. I, I think if we're really honest, Jesus is wrong. Well, of course he thinks this is the better thing. He's a spiritual guru and he spends his life walking around doing spiritual things. Of course he thinks it's the better way, but you'll notice that Jesus is benefiting from a meal that a Martha made for him. And we've got tasks, we've got chores. I, I, I don't have a choice to not work and put in my, my 40, 50, 60 hours to make sure that there's, there's money for, for my family, for my kids. I don't have a choice not to prioritize the activities that my kids have because I want them to have a life of success, which means they need to be well-rounded and they need to learn all of these things that they'll learn through all the extracurriculars. It is easy for Jesus to say, 
that there is a better thing that Martha is not choosing. And yet, if I'm really getting into the, the deep and dirty and I invite you to do the same, I think he's wrong. And if we think he's wrong, the rest of this story isn't actually gonna matter. Like we could read it all day long and, and we, can, we can tell these truths and we could say, this is, this is what Jesus is teaching us and, and we cannot, and none of it's gonna land. Because Jesus is saying that there is a better thing. And he even spells it out even more clearly a few verses earlier in Luke 10. He says, Look, wanna know what the better thing is? Here it is, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And the second thing is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, you're distracted by all the wrong things. The better thing is to do this, that you should love God with all your heart. You should love your neighbor as yourself. That's the better thing that Jesus is teaching. And just for kicks and to check myself on this, I actually watched a bunch of sermons online this week on this passage because I just wanted to see where all the pastors went with it. Uh, and, and they went with it exactly where I expected, that the, that the moral of the story is so clear, what's going on here, that we should be a Mary, not Martha. And over and over again, I saw pastors say, you need to slow down. You're doing too much. Life's too busy. You need to prioritize the right things. You got, got the things out of order. And, and, and what are the right things? You need help with that? You need to be like Mary. Spend more time at the feet of Jesus. Do more Bible study, do more devotions, more prayer. You do all these things, more time serving your neighbor. How are you pouring out on people around you? How are you serving? And, and I could just see like the heads of the people and all of them are nodding. They're like, oh, you're so right, pastor. You're so right. Yep, got to slow down. You're right. You're right. Got to prioritize the right things. I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible more this week. I am. I'm going to serve my neighbor. I'm totally going to buy that water pick and start flossing. I am. I'm totally going to do it. No, you're not. I'm not. I've read this story a million times. I do spend probably more time in Bible study than a lot of people, but not what I should, for sure. There's a disconnect between the obvious should of this story and how we actually understand our lives and the choices that we should or should not make differently. See, here, there's a truth. I've been wrestling with this truth for a long time, and it's been slowly crystallizing in my own heart, my own mind. And here's the truth I want to share with you today. I've held back, but I really do believe this. That at the end of the day, I think that God's shoulds are ultimately toxic if they are separated from God's whys. That's what I'm saying. The, 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 the things we should do, that the morality of Christianity, all of the right and righteous actions, all of the shoulds of the Bible, not only are they less valuable if, if you don't have the why, I think it goes the other way. I think they actually become unhealthy, abusive, toxic if they're separated from the why. And so when we go out there and when we front God should, we say, oh, you should do this, you should live this way. Uh, at best, people will nod their heads knowing fully well that they're never actually gonna do it. But at worst, it causes harm in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our country. See, I, I do have a soapbox. It's one, uh, which is that I, I do agree that Christianity is, is dwindling as a force in, in America and has been for a few decades now. But I strongly disagree with the reason that is most often said as to why. People say the reason is because, oh, it's all those secularists and all those liberals and Hollywood and all these people out there that don't value God anymore and they don't value morality anymore. And that's why Christianity is dwindling. And I 100% disagree. Christianity is dwindling because for the last 70 years, Christians have been fronting God's shoulds to our society and leaving out God's whys. 
And if you don't believe me, think about this passage. You're all here. You're here because you probably love Jesus uh, or because you at least think he's interesting and worth, worth learning about. You're here because you value church. You think it's an important thing to do. And yet we're people who are already predisposed towards the things of God. And yet you'll hear that passage where Jesus says, oh, you're choosing all the wrong things. You got to reprioritize your life. You got to spend more time in Bible study. And all of you disagree with your actions. And you already care about this stuff at least a little bit. And so now picture what it, what it, how it lands for people that don't even like Jesus, don't have Christian uh, values, don't value going to church, and then we front all of the things that they should be doing, and we try to enforce them as laws, and we say, here are the laws of the land now. We're going to make you do God's shoulds. It's toxic. And here's the thing that's, that's so beautiful about this, is that the reason Jesus is the greatest storyteller of all time is Jesus never once gave a should without giving the accompanying why. Every should came with a story. Every should came with context. Everything where Jesus is saying, hey, this is a change I think you should make is because he tells you there's a reason why it would be better for you. And the should of the Mary and Martha story is obvious. Yeah, yeah, you should slow down. We should prioritize better things. You should spend more time at the feet of Jesus. The shoulds are obvious. Did any of you catch the why? It was there. It was in the story, but it was subtle and it was small. And I think we often skip right past it. So let's go back. The why is right there. Here's the why. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. And I want to frame this for you well. See, the Hebrew structure of this tells us what kind of statement this was. Jesus was not rebuking her. He wasn't yelling at her. This was not a stern, corrective, critical statement, which is how I often tend to read it. This repeating of the name in Hebrew structure is a tender way to speak to someone. It's the way you would speak to a baby, right? You'd say, oh, baby, baby, it's okay. It's a soothing way to speak to someone. Jesus isn't wagging his finger in her face saying, you got it wrong and Mary got it right. He's saying, Martha, Martha, I see you. It's so hard to feel worried and upset. It's so hard to feel like the world is on your shoulders. I care. That is the why of this story. Which means it's only going to land right for us if we're in the same why as Martha. It's only gonna land right if our life is at a point where it doesn't feel good to us anymore. Where all the things we're striving after, all the stuff we're doing for success, for setting our kids up well, if all of those things are fulfilling to you, if you think that, oh no, I've got it, I've got my, my career plan, I've got my retirement figured out, I've got it all laid out and it's going great, then actually this scripture passage is not for you. And this teaching of Jesus, you're not, you're not ready for it yet. This should is only right and helpful and healthy and holy if your why matches Martha's, which is this, if you are worried and upset about your life. If the stress and the overwhelm of all the things that you need to do to get things right and going, if, if that's slowly grinding you down into a pulp, that's the why. 
If you're watching your kids grow up and you're realizing more and more, I'm trying to do all the right things and yet I see them taking paths and making choices that I am powerless to stop and and you are are stressed and you are worried, that's the why. Because at the end of the day, I don't think there are any Marys in the room. A lot of people talk about, oh, are you a Mary? Are you a Martha? I think that's a pointless question. We're all Marthas and if you don't believe me, look at your little tally again. We're all Marthas. The only question is this, are we Marthas who have already been burned out by the urgent and necessary things in life? Or are we Marthas who are still deluding ourselves and think that we're going along swimmingly? And that's the choice. And if you think you're going along swimmingly, I'm not gonna be the one to persuade you otherwise. But if you are someone who has done all the right things, you've striven for the career, the success, the money, the rewards, the relationships, and you find yourself just trying to juggle more and more balls, and you're trying to get this kid there and that kid there, and I've got to help this thing, and and you just are feeling it all collapsing in on yourself, and you cannot keep up with it anymore. This is the moment. The moment where you find yourself, you're burning out. You're burning bridges with your family, with your coworkers, with your friends. You're feeling just beat up by the side of the road and just knowing that you cannot maintain this pace of life anymore. It's in that moment, in that moment alone, that you drag yourself beaten and crawling to the feet of Jesus and he looks down at you and he says your name twice and then he says, once upon a time, There was a man on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they left him half dead. But then a priest came along and he saw the man, but when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite came along and when he saw the man, he passed him by the same way. But eventually, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. That's one of Jesus' own parables, and it's got a lot of different possible meanings, one of which Dion Garrett talked about a couple of weeks ago. But, but in addition to all the meanings that it could have, I think there is one first meaning that I'd like for us to cling to today, that however else you interpret the story, whatever other metaphor and allegory you think is going on, recognize this, that the Samaritan is also a picture of God. And the man beaten up on the side of the road is you and me. And God, who is the busiest being in all the universe, because he's running the universe, he's keeping all of the stars in their orbits, the sun only rises every morning because God is there saying, all right, son, let's go, get up, time again for the day. God himself, with all of the tasks and all of the urgent and necessary things, God stops and gets off his donkey when he sees you hurting when he sees you stressed and burned out, God himself makes time for you, whether it fit into his busy schedule or not, whether it was part of his plans for the day or not. See, before you and I even get to the should question of what is the better thing that we should choose like Mary, recognize this, that God chose the better thing and it was you. 
As important as it is that the sun rises and the flowers bloom and the stars keep their seasons, as important as all of those things are, the better thing is that you are hurting and God cares. And that all of the choices we make flow out of that why. Because when we're hurting, when we know that God is always waiting for us, he's not too busy for us, he hasn't chosen the wrong things, he is waiting there patiently and kindly for the moment that we finally burn out and we're ready to finally say, okay, I tried all the other things. What was this better thing you were talking about, Jesus? I promise you he'll be there waiting for you with a tender smile on his face, just like he was for Martha. But here's the thing about this truth. I think that this is a truth that cannot be told, which is a a scary thing for me to say because my job hinges on me standing up here and telling you truths about God. But this is what I, I believe. This is only a truth that can be discovered. Because someone will tell it to you and it'll just land like a should and it'll be just one more toxic teaching of Christianity. And what happens is you have to discover this for yourself one way or another. And I'll say I've observed, I think there are two groups of people that will naturally discover the truth of this story. And the first group is children. Children get this. They don't even have to be told. Uh, my wife, uh, she recently started picking up a few hours uh, working at a childcare, uh, and it's because she just loves babies, and I've made it clear that we're having no more babies. Uh, and so she's all right, fine, I'm going to go work at a childcare, and I get to hold other people's babies. I said, great, please do that. But if you know my wife, she is a sparkling, scintillating woman, just a presence in any room she's in. And her first day at this childcare, none of these kids even knew her before, but these two-year-olds and these three-year-olds, they saw her and they were mesmerized and they couldn't do anything but flock to her and sit in her lap and play with her earrings and hear her stories. See, kids get it. If there's one important person in the room, that's all your focus. Nothing else matters except being in the lap of this person that so clearly cares for you and loves you and is bringing life for you. Kids discover the truth of the story easily. There is a second group of people that I think discover the truth of this naturally, and that group is midlife crisis folks. I think midlife crisis guys get it. Uh, And I might think that just because I'm going through a midlife crisis, and so that might be why I feel this way. And may I say, I picked the absolute worst time to go through a midlife crisis because I really want to buy a ridiculous and impractical car, and I cannot afford one, because the inflation is ridiculous right now with cars. And I'm like, man, I can't even afford a boring car right now, let alone a ridiculous and practical one. How am I supposed to live out my midlife crisis? But I think there's a truth because it's people in that crisis moment, or maybe it's a quarter-life crisis, or maybe it's a retirement crisis, where people have spent their years, their decades, striving for a thing, filling their lives with the necessary urgent tasks, and they've come to this pause, reflective moment where they just realize, what have I been doing? I spent all that time at work for the bonus, for the raise, for the title, and, and, and my kids were just kind of off to the side. Did I choose the right thing? I, I don't even know anymore. Or they just get to this point where they've been doing and striving and succeeding and it's come at such a cost to them personally. And they say, I can't, I can't stay on the treadmill anymore. And it's that group of people that I think naturally discovers what Jesus is saying here, that this isn't a law. This isn't a legalism. This isn't a should. This is Jesus saying, I got you. I know you're done. I know you're burned out. Let me help. And if you're not there yet, I want to say that's okay. 
If this is a truth that doesn't land for you, then what I would encourage you is, is file it away, put it in your pocket for later. But don't just sit here and nod and say, yes, dentist Jesus, I'm gonna change my life because you tell me I should. Don't do that. Just, just say, you know what? This must not be for me yet today. And that's okay. It's okay. But if you are in the spot that Martha was in, if you are in the spot where you are ready to discover this truth, in fact, that's how um, the NLT version puts it. I love this. Uh, NIV said Mary has chosen the better thing. NLT, I love it. It says Mary has discovered the better thing. Because what that shows me is you don't discover things without finding a lot of wrong things along the way. So if you're finally at this point where you have discovered that you need a better system, you need different priorities, you need, you need margin and you need time in a way that you can't figure out before, then I got a couple of tips for you. That there are some ways to figure out this better thing that Jesus wants for you and for your life. Uh, and I wanna just share a couple of them for you, with you today for you to just write them down, note them, and maybe see what Jesus might be calling you to a next step in this area. These come from a book called The One Life Solution. Dr. Henry Cloud is a Christian uh, scientist, uh, Christian uh, psychologist. Uh, I really value uh, and admire him as a, as a person and a teacher. Uh, and he has a couple of tips in this book. And here's the first one. The first one is you get what you tolerate. And what he's saying is that we as children of God, we have the power of Jesus at our disposal. The Holy Spirit is in our hearts, which means we are the most powerful beings in the universe. We are heirs of the kingdom, which means whether you realize it or not, there is nothing in your life that you have not allowed to be in your life. It sometimes feels like we're powerless. It feels like we're, we're victims of circumstance. And yet what Dr. Cloud is saying is that's actually not true. We have divine power. It took me all of my 20s to learn this truth. I, in my 20s, I just kept feeling like it's my boss is a bad boss and, and my company's just a t dysfunctional company. And my, my girlfriend, she doesn't know how to love me right. And, and everything was always about other people were the problem. And, and what Dr. Cloud points out is actually because of the power we have, there is nothing in your life that you have not tolerated, that you have not through your own inaction allowed to be. All the schedule, all the urgencies, you have tolerated them, which means you have passively chosen them. And so he says, the first step is just to pay attention, to look around and say, what did I passively tolerate? What things feel like they're being done to me? They're being inflicted upon me. And yet actually it's a thing I've tolerated. And maybe it's time for me to consider not tolerating it anymore. And he says, if you're ready for that, then here's, here's your litmus test. Here's a good radar detector for you. So look in your life, examine and audit your life and find the misery Find that, that task or that relationship that's bringing you pain. And maybe it was good once upon a time, but now it's toxic. Now it's not benefiting you or your life anymore. And he says, use that. Use that as a guy. He says, find that misery and make a boundary. Find a way to minimize the power of that person in your life. Find, find a boundary to, to, to get that task off of your ledger. Find the misery and leverage your power to do something about it because you can. And what he says, I believe, which is that at the end of the day, when we give up on all the other things that we strive for, our God is a patient and compassionate God. He's not been up there tisking and, and rolling his eyes at all of the wrong choices you've made. He's just been patiently, compassionately waiting for you to finally discover that you can't do it alone, that you need something better, you need something different. And he will be there to pull you up, to tell you a story, 
to guide you to a more peaceful, content, and better life. In fact, let's pray to Jesus right now to do that for us. So let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, I thank you that you don't live in judgment and scorn of us. I thank you that you see all of the things we strive for, the choices and the urgencies that we, that we choose, and you just feel mercy. And so, Lord, in your compassion, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, give us the ability to, to discern, to reflect, to meditate, to notice what things in our life that feel so urgent, so important, but are actually keeping us from the fullness, the peace, the contentment that you want for us so badly. So Lord, give us the courage to face those things, to make those choices. And Lord, in all of it, let it be because we finally are aligning ourselves with the best thing that you would have for ourselves that we would trust that you don't front the shoulds because you're a killjoy, but only because you want us to stop struggling so hard and to receive all of your goodness, your joy, your intention that you have for us. Lord, I know you have a better story in mind for each person here than we could ever dream for ourselves. So Lord, continue to be a storyteller today and help us write a better story with you. We pray this trusting in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.